Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thanks for joining me for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I am professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University, and I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Saba Barzargan Forward. Saba is an associate professor of philosophy at UC San Diego. His research focuses on normative ethics with a fix, I'm sorry, uh, focuses on normative ethics with special interest on questions of individual and collective responsibility. His new book, which has just been published by Oxford University Press, is titled Authority, Cooperation, and Accountability. We often find ourselves acting in concert with others, where what we do together goes beyond the causal contribution of any single participant. When a collection of individuals works together in a way that results in a wrongful harm, it seems intuitive to think that each of the participants should be held accountable for that harm. But this intuition needs to be squared with the fact that no single individual's contribution was causally necessary for the harm to have occurred. Hence, there's a range of views about collective responsibility, most of which posit group agents and collective intentions and things like that. Sometimes these things are very hard to make sense of. Now, in authority, cooperation, and accountability, Saba Bazargan Forward develops a different approach. On his view, ordinary features of human agency can be dispersed across individuals in ways that can form a division of agential labor. When that kind of division of labor is established, Many of the puzzles about collective responsibility and accountability can be resolved in a novel way. Now, as usual, there's a lot to talk about, but we will begin, as we normally do, with our guest. Hello, Saba. Hello. Thanks for inviting how, me. Uh, it's wonderful to be talking to you. Uh, how are you today? Oh, good. Good. And you? <laughs> I'm doing okay. How are things in San Diego, as if I should have to ask? Yeah, sunny as usual. Sunny in 72? Yeah. Actually, yeah. <laughs> just about. <laughs> well, fantastic. Um, you know, we start these interviews uh, with me asking the author to say a few things about uh, about himself. So um, tell us a bit about yourself. Well, uh, I was actually born in Iran, in Tehran, and came to the U.S. Uh, when I was less than a year old. And I've lived in the U.S. since, although I visited Iran uh, quite a few times uh, since then. And uh, like many immigrants, or uh, at least, you know, the, the, the child or children of immigrants, I was, especially from that region, I was expected to be a doctor or an engineer or something of that ilk. And but you are a doctor. <laughs> I am. <laughs> but, you know, the right kind of doctor <laughs> I was doctor, expected to be. Doctor. Yeah, the medical doctor. <laughs> and uh, when I revealed to my parents that I was in fact chose that in fact chose philosophy as a major in college you know they were sort of stunned like we came to this country to give you a good education and you choose philosophy (laughs) and uh yeah but I got lucky and it has uh turned out pretty well for me since then and they've come to they quickly came to accept and support this decision uh I uh yeah so I did uh, my undergraduate education at UCLA, where I spent 
all too many hours in the philosophy department there and uh, did my graduate education at Rutgers under uh, Jeff McMahon and uh, then eventually found my way to a professorship at uh, UC San Diego. So it was a pretty straight shot. Uh, you know, like I said, this is a large, a large amount of it was uh, doodle luck as well as whatever other elements that usually go into professional uh, success. And uh, yeah, so here I am uh, now. Fantastic. When um, when I had told my parents that I was going to major in philosophy when I was in college, um, my father, who uh, was not who thought it was important for me to have a college degree, I, I wasn't clear um, why it might be important other than just you know credentialing for for you know something some other or other career. So I'm going to major in philosophy, and he got very serious, and he said, the professors who teach the classes you're taking in philosophy, do they get paid? <laughs> Nominally, they do. I said, yeah, they get paid. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think he thought that it was volunteer work or something. All right. Um so uh, let's let, let's let's start with the with the background to your book. This is an intervention um, in uh, a robust and I think really really interesting debate uh, that's been going on for for a, a quite a long time, I would say, um, and maybe filling in some of the the, the contours of the, the the dialectical backdrop would be helpful uh, to some of our listeners who not, might not be acquainted with, uh, with with some of those details. So um, your introduction leads with a quote uh, from H.D. Lewis. Um, Lewis says, uh, no one can be responsible in the properly ethic, ethical sense for the conduct of another. Now, that seems to me to be a pretty um, strong intuition. Um, however, uh, it's also... <laughs> seems obvious um, that uh, there are some cases in which an individual indeed is morally accountable uh, for um, for acts, uh, maybe for acts that constitute wrongful harms that are strictly speaking beyond, uh, you know, beyond her uh, uh, causal, uh, beyond the range of her causal power. Um, so it looks like there are cases of collective responsibility in which we are, in some sense, um, held accountable for uh, the conduct, at least conduct that's not strictly ours. Um, so can you explain the big picture here, the the, the broader debate about the, the conflict between these two, I think, pretty strong intuitions that don't seem to work well together? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, as as you've noted, we're sort of pulled in two directions when it comes to accountability for what we do. I mean, on the one hand, we have the sort of H.D. Lewis type intuition that's expressed in that quote that serves a kind of as a kind of foil for what's going on early in the book, where this, according to this sort of conceit, uh, we're accountable only for the consequences of what we do or what we don't do, uh, you know, what's within our causal reach. And that seems, you know, intuitively plausible. It seems a, a the, the sort of principle that we would uh, agree to from the outset. But, you know, then we take cases in which 
an individual cooperates with others in furtherance of some uh, morally bad goal. And as you mentioned, these cases where the individual's contribution to that morally bad goal might be quite small or minimal. And in these in cases of this sort, we might want to say that the individual is accountable for more than the uh, more than what she does, or more than what she could have prevented. So, just as an example, suppose you have a group of individuals who are wrongly uh, stoning someone to death, and uh, you know it's a particularly horrible example. But you, we want to say that each individual stone thrower that his or her accountability for the ensuing death uh, is greater than the harm that that stone thrower causes. So each stone thrower might, you know, cause harm that falls short of death and yet will be accountable for uh, something that was outside uh, his causal control, which is the death itself that you're accountable for more than the difference you make, more than what you could have prevented. And so we have these sorts of cases where it seems that the individual is inculpated in the wrongful uh, outcome of the cooperative action of which uh, she's a part. And of course, you know, that sort of example is particularly horrible. But I think that we retain this intuition also in more benign cases and more common cases. So, you know, when you're working for a corporation that does bad things and uh, you might just be a mid-level employee or a manager or something, you know, you're not the CEO, you're not a member of the board. I mean, there's these questions about whether you are accountable for more than what you cause or could have prevented. Or if you're participating in the military when it's waging an unjust war, you know, we might want to know uh, what is it exactly that you are accountable for? Are you accountable only for what you cause or could have prevented? Are you accountable only for the difference that you make? Or are you accountable for more in virtue of participating in this cooperative endeavor? Or if you're uh, joining a protest, uh, many members of which behave badly, you know, are you accountable for what they do in virtue of having participated in this cooperative activity? And in these cases, uh, you know, if it might be that an individual is accountable for more than what's under her, her control. And this, this seems to clash with the eminently plausible pronouncement that H.D. Lewis articulated, which is that you're only on the hook for what's within your own causal reach. So we have these two principles that kind of pull in opposite directions, and we need a way to adjudicate them. And, you know, some people just want to stipulate that, hey, look, there are, these cons- there are these cases where you're accountable for more than what's within your own causal reach. And I agree that there are, but we can't just stipulate that precisely because it clashes with this equally plausible pronouncement that you're only accountable for what's within your own causal reach. Uh, We can't just claim that, um, you know, we've hit bedrock in our analysis and it's just a brute fact that you can be accountable for more than the difference you make. Uh, We need reason beyond these individual cases to believe that. Uh, So we have uh, sort of two options here uh, in making sense of individual accountability in these cases. 
And the first option is to say that, hey, look, uh, actually, you are, in fact, only accountable for the consequences of what you do or what you don't do. And that these cases where we're blaming someone for outcomes that are outside our own causal reach are cases of wrongfully imputed blame. And, you know, we we may just uh, bite the bullet there, but that seems too restrictive, at least uh, to me. On the other hand, we can admit that you're accountable for what others do when we're working together with them uh, in the way that I've suggested, contrary to H.D. Lewis. But this, again, seems kind of mysterious. And honestly, it might seem to some as kind of illiberal and regressive, the thought that you can be held accountable for what others do when you didn't make a difference to what they do, when you couldn't have controlled what they do, uh, that suddenly accountability just falls out of the sky upon you. And that doesn't seem to square with our sort of uh, uh, intuitions regarding voluntarism, that namely that you must have done something uh, in order to be held accountable for bad acts. So the purpose of the book is sort of to address this issue uh, as to how individuals can be accountable for what others do in the context of cooperation. And, uh, you know, importantly, the book is about accountability in the context of, of cooperation. It's not about individual accountability in the context where we together commit a harm in a context where we're not trying to cooperate. So, you know, we're together contributing to global warming. We're together contributing to the overuse of plastic and it's, you know, ending up in the ocean. That's all true, but we're not doing that as a result of kind of intentional cooperation. Those are unstructured harms that result from the aggregate of individual contributions. And uh, those are not the sorts of collective harms that I'm analyzing. Rather, I'm analyzing the sorts of collective harms that fall under the aegis of cooperative activity. Uh, when individuals intentionally come together in order to achieve some goal, such which is the case in the examples I've mentioned about the stoning, about the corporation, about the military, about the protest, they've come together in some way. And the issue is, how do we parcel out accountability in these cases. And it might seem that bureaucracy in general inhibits accountability in certain ways that, you know, you're just doing your job. uh, You have a causally kind of minimal effect on what other people do in distant parts of the bureaucracy that you're sort of cordoned off uh, normatively from other individuals in the cooperative collective. And I want to push against that. I want to suggest that bureaucracy can be inculpating rather than exculpating. And in making this argument, I want to be metaphysically conservative. And this is the thing I was really thought it was very important to get to, because I think that uh, one of the, at least from, from, from my philosophical point of view, one of the refreshing parts of the or elements of your account is that it it, it attempts to be metaphysically sparing. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. Exactly. Good. So, yeah. I mean, there are 
no group agents. I'm sorry. Sorry. I shouldn't say there are no group agents. I don't invoke group agents in the the context of the book as far as making the arguments go. I mean, I'm fine with the possibility of group agents. I'm fine with the existence of group agents, but I don't think that we need to invoke them in order to explain how individuals might end up accountable for what others do uh, when they're cooperating together. I also... uh, I also don't claim that groups qua groups can be accountable for what they together do. Again, it might be that they can be accountable for what they together do, but I don't rely upon those claims and making sense of individual accountability for what we together do. Uh, And uh, at the same time, I don't rely on any alternative modes well, I shouldn't say alternative modes, but any alternative types of accountability. Uh, so the sort of accountability at issue is just ordinary accountability, the kind that we talk about in every day or that philosophers invoke all the time. Uh, so there's not some special or different kind of accountability that's at work here. And, yeah. and I don't rely on any particular theory of normative ethics either. So not rule utilitarianism, not Kantianism, not contractarianism, or what have you. So it's just the ordinary notion of accountability, albeit one that derives from the moral irrelevance of authority, or what I call um, authority-based accountability, that at the same time doesn't lean on any particular theory of normative ethics. Fantastic. Um that's a, a really nice, you've just laid out, I think, the, the terrain really, really nicely. Um, and this will uh, help segue very um, smoothly into uh, uh, the next question, which is about the one of the central concepts of the book where we just, uh, where you just left off. Um, I want to, I'd like to ask you to unpack the, the idea of authority-based accountability. And maybe one way um, we you, you, you might proceed is uh, to tell us a little bit about what an example that appears throughout the book, which is the Olympic sab- sabotage example. Um, I'm especially interested to sort of tease out the view that one person's role in a collective enterprise can supply the purpose of another of another's action, and in supplying the purpose, can fill in important moral details about uh, the nature of uh, that other person's action. Um, and then I want to ask about these these. Um, uh, more uh, extended cases where uh, multiple participants can supply to the other participants the purposes of their actions in the collective endeavor. So start with the Olympic example. Uh, I'm sorry, the Olympic sabotage example. Let's start there and and, and sort of pull the focus back and, and, get, and get the big picture for authority-based accountability on the table. Yeah. So as you note, um, I start with a toy example. It's really simple, almost humorously so. But the idea is to uh, start off simple and and then work my way up from there to more uh, bureaucratically complex cooperative endeavors. Because, you know, cooperative endeavors can get quite uh, intricate. (laughs) And uh, so it's helpful to start with a simple case. So I'm imagining that there uh, there are two individuals, a contender and victim, who are both uh, competing in an Olympic sport. And, uh, you know, Contender isn't a particularly good person. So she hires Goon 
uh, to maim her opponent victim, you know, to, uh, you know, I, I don't know, injure her in some way that'll put her out of the running, thereby basically ensuring contenders uh, victory. So contender hires Goon, Goon promises to maim victim, and Goon does so. And here, uh, Goon, uh, you know, might have no idea what the purpose of the assault is, might have no idea that there's this, uh, that they're both contenders in an Olympic competition. Uh, they might have no idea what the purpose of what it is that he's doing. And I argue that uh, contender, the person who hired Goon, constitutively determines, you know, from afar, as it were, uh, the purpose that Goon has in assaulting victim. And that purpose depends on the reasons that contender has for wanting victim to be assaulted. So Goon might remain all the while in the dark about what that purpose is. So, you know, in the example, as I've laid it out, the purpose is to put uh, the victim out of the running to basically help ensure contender's victory. But we can imagine other examples. We can imagine that, uh, you know, victim has been pseudonymously posting disparaging remarks about contender on social media. And that's why, uh, contender hires goon to find out who this person is and maim her, you know, just as an act of revenge. And it might just be a total coincidence that victim is goon's opponent in the forthcoming competition. In that case, the purpose of the assault will be different. Or we can even imagine a case where, as uh, weird as it might be to imagine, that contender hires goon to maim victim for victim's benefit. We can imagine a case where victim has been receiving very credible death threats from some other party uh, that unless she drops out of the race, you know, she's going to be killed. And then she doesn't take the threat seriously, but her friend contender does and is unable to convince her to drop out. So she hires, contender hires goon to ensure that victim doesn't play. And there, the purpose of the assault is quite different from the other two versions of the case. And, but in all these cases, afterwards, if victim wants to know why she was assaulted and comes to Goon and asks why, oh, why, uh, you know, why did you do this? You know, Goon might give his own reasons. It might be that, oh, I, was, I, I wanted the money. I was paid to do it. I always keep my promises. I like hurting other people. I dislike you, I like contender, that might be a whole host of reasons. But at the end of the day, if victim wants to know all the reasons or the purpose behind the assault, she kind of has to look through, uh, to put it metaphorically, look through Goon's reasons to uh, contender's reasons. Because contender is the one who is supplying a crucial purpose for Goon. Uh, so by constitutively determining the purpose of Goon's actions, there's a sense in which Contender is acting vicariously through Goon by conferring uh, that purpose on Goon's actions. And Contender has this power to help determine the purpose uh, for what Goon does, I say, by virtue of Contender's practical authority over Goon. So 
uh, contender is accountable for a wrong-making feature of Goon's actions, namely the purpose behind it, by virtue of having conferred that purpose. And she's able to confer that purpose in virtue of the practical authority she has over Goon. And I call this uh, authority-based accountability. It's just accountability for having conferred upon another person a wrongful purpose for their actions. Uh, so although I have this, um, you know, I talk about authority-based accountability, it might seem like, oh, there's some special kind of accountability. It's just ordinary accountability. It just specifies a particular object, namely the wrongful purpose for the actions of another. That's what you're accountable for. And, you know, this is, of course, a silly case. Uh, and ordinary accountability, as we uh, understand it, uh, that's based on the causal consequences of your actions can easily put contender on the hook in this case anyway. Like we don't need authority-based accountability to explain why contender is on the hook. But I think it's helpful to move from this case to a slightly more complex case, which can help uh, sort of demonstrate to the work that authority-based accountability does. And the more complex case, it's still a toy case, but at least it involves more than three people. And it's the case that I call uh, the bandits and the beans, which is actually derived from, uh, it, it, it's actually a case that has some pedigree in the literature. And this is a case where there are a bunch of bandits and each agrees with one another when they are descending upon a village uh, to steal one bean from each of a thousand bulls belonging to a thousand villagers. So each bandit steals one bean from a thousand bulls. This means each bandit steals an aggregate a thousand beans, albeit spread out across a thousand villagers. The result is that the villagers are left with no beans and they starve. Uh, but of course, you know, no single bandit makes an appreciable difference to the diet of any particular villager. Uh, each bandit is stealing only one bean from each villager. And this is a case where I think, as I you know, mentioned at the outset, intuitively, we want to say that each bandit is accountable for more than uh, what he does. And I think authority-based accountability can help with this sort of case. So we have to imagine that each bandit agreed to do his part with the other bandits. And as a result, each bandit has a practical claim against every other bandit, namely a practical claim that that bandit pull his weight. Maybe the idea is that afterwards when they have all these beans, they'll sell it and you know, derive profit from it. So each bandit is sort of depending that everyone else you know, kind of pulls their weight or at least a crucial threshold of others pull their weight. And in this respect, each bandit has practical authority over every other bandit. Now, uh, remember that when you have authority over someone, that they act in a particular way, as I mentioned before, you thereby confer upon him or her a purpose for their actions. And this means each bandit confers upon every other bandit a particular purpose for stealing the beans. Now, each bandit's purpose that he confers you know, might differ in subtle ways. It might be that the purpose is to help sell the beans so that he can share in the 
overall uh, profit that they gain. Or it might be that you know a particular bandit has the purpose of inflicting pain on the villagers. Maybe he's just a sadist. Or maybe the bandit thinks this is fun and the purpose is to together have fun or whatever other purpose that you can imagine. But the purpose conferred upon any given bandit uh, is presumably a wrong-making feature of what that bandit does, given that you know no bandit has available to them a justification for stealing the beans. So whether it's to have fun or to help s- steal the beans or to inflict pain, these are all bad purposes. So any given bandit confers upon every other bandit a you know a bad purpose, and this means that uh, given say uh, fifty bandits. Any individual bandit is going to be accountable for conferring a bad purpose upon 49 other bandits. So each bandit is accountable not just for the wrongful purpose that he might have, you know, his own private wrongful purpose for participating, but also is accountable for the wrongful purpose that 49 others will have as well. So each bandit bears uh, accountability authority-based accountability for what they together do. And the way I put this that I hope makes it intuitive is that in the same way the contender acts vicariously through the goon, the bandits act vicariously through each other. And, you know, there, there's several questions that arise in this toy case because it's still a toy case. You know, for, for any given bandit, absent his participation the other bandits would still have roughly the same purpose. I mean, after all, um, each bandit uh, will have 49 other purposes conferred upon him, uh, as well as his own private purposes. So it might seem that, uh, you know, the, that each bandit is normatively insignificant and not just causally insignificant. But this isn't so... Because, I, was, I mean, I, I address this sort of concern specifically, and I don't think that it's so because the, ba- the purpose any bandit confers is by itself enough to make it so that the bandit's conduct upon whom he confers that purpose has a wrongful purpose. So each bandit's conferred purpose is sufficient to make, it, uh, to make that bandit's purpose wrongful. And of course, this example is idealized in a bunch of ways. You know, they're all acting together. They all agree explicitly. They all know what they're doing. They're all doing the exact same thing. There's no boss, but it helps us get a foot in the door. Good. Um, Sabah, can I, can I ask a, a, a philosopher's question now just um, about, about a particular detail in the, in the formulation of the, the two kinds of case that you were just asking? And it's, it's, this, is a, this is an honest, like, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm wondering why, and I really am wondering, this isn't the uh, walking you down a garden path. Um, so uh, let's go back to the, the Olympic case. Um, so the way that you formulate the the, the authority based accountability thought throughout the book is that um, the deliberator, the, the the person in the contender's role in the cooperative activity, uh, confers by virtue of uh, his reasons, confers upon the executor, who is the uh, the the analog of of the goon uh, uh, in the Olympic case, confers constitutively the purpose uh, of goon's action. 
Um, and as I was reading the book, I, 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 you know, legit was wondering, like, is the would there be some, uh, some cost to expressing the thought where one would say, well, what Contender is doing is, um. Uh, doing something that might be described differently as from um, the way you describe it, which is constitutively supplying the purpose. It's like, no, we need to uh, aver to contenders reasons in order to properly define what goon did. <laughs> what is, do you see, do you see the difference there? I mean, or maybe you just want to say it's, it's not that big a difference and just the talk about purposes is just an easier way or more uh, a precise way. I just wonder why it's not the case that the contender, uh, that, that contender supplies the right description under which goons under to, uh, the right description to capture goons action rather than the purpose of goons action. That's, that's a great question. And to answer it, I'm going to, you know, also give a philosopher's answer, <laughs> uh, which is that, you know, when, when describing action, you know, at least on a Davidsonian account, uh, right. we do so teleologically. That's what, that's what licenses particular descriptions as to what it is that you did. So, you know, when you o- open up the door to, you know, get the mail and a fly happens to come in, you know, the, the proper description of what you did is to get the mail and not to let the fly in, even though that's a consequence of what you did, because one adverts to the purpose or the, you know, the, the, the aim of opening the door and the other doesn't. So the reason why we can uh, describe what the goon does in terms of the reasons that the goon had is precisely because uh, the sorry, the reason that we can describe what the goon does in terms of the reasons that the contender had is precisely because the contender conferred that particular purpose on the goon. That's what licenses that description, the, the description that you mentioned. Okay, uh, yeah. Um, would, it, it, would it be incorrect, though, to say that the contender... The contender uh, so we'll go back to the case where um, victim asks Goon, "Why did you do that?" You know, Nancy Kerrigan, "Why? <laughs> why, yeah. why did you do that?" Um, uh, you know, am I making a mistake, or are my intuitions off if I think that um, "Why did you do that?" is 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 in part from the philosophical point of view, heard as a question of what, what the, that is. <laughs> and yeah. that, um, in order to answer that question, goon, it's not enough for goon just to talk about wanting to get paid by way of keeping his promise. But, um, that what he, what he did, <laughs> uh, has to make sort of essential reference, uh, to contenders, to contenders purposes. Yes, precisely. So, Precisely. Okay. Right. Yeah, like a full description right. of what Goon does is going to have is going to refer anaphorically to put it, you know, put some philosophical jargon in there to the purpose that contender had for that action. Okay. All right. Good. Um, that 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 that's that's helpful. Um, okay. So. Uh, We've got the, 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 the general contours of authority-based accountability, uh, and I think we've got a good sense of the kind of accountability we're talking about. Um, 
let's sort of shift now to to the part of the the view that that relies on the idea of cooperation uh, among the parties. Um, and particularly, you want to say that the the kinds of conditions that mu- the, the condition that must obtain, or one of the conditions that must obtain, um, in order for authority based accountability to emerge, and in order for uh, uh, one to to be resp- to be accountable for more than is what what's within his causal reach, is that uh, the participators, the participants, uh, have to have established a division of agential labor. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that condition and how it happens? Yeah. So, so far I've been talking, you know, a bit about authority and, you know, authority might bring to mind these like formal regimented relationships, like the relationship that a bishop has to a priest or the relationship that a uh, CEO has to a manager or a commanding officer has to a private. But uh, by authority, I mean something that's much more common and prosaic. Uh, and so I need to answer, you know, as you've asked, how does one person come to have authority over another? And what is it that I mean by authority? And to, you know, unpack this, I dive into how ordinary deliberation functions intra-personally, you know, just within a single individual deciding for themselves what to do. And we can understand individual agency as consisting in part of a deliberative function and an executory function, uh, where the deliberative function involves weighing the pros and cons, deciding what to do, and the executory function involves acting upon that decision. Not all of our agency can be characterized in this way. A lot of what we do is just sort of automatic or by instinct or reflex, but at least in sort of like paradigmatic cases of agency, They involve deliberation and execution. And these two aspects of agency, normally wrapped up in a single person, can be distributed across persons, I say, in what I call a division of agential labor. So the idea is that one person has the job of deliberating about some issue, and another person has the job of acting on the outcome of that deliberation. So one person's the decider. I guess it was, what was it? Bush 43. They called himself the decider. One person's the decider. <laughs> the second Bush. Yeah. The second yeah, I'm Bush. The decider. Yeah. 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 I, I always like Bush 43 versus Bush 41 because it makes the second <laughs> Bush sound like a radioactive isotope of the first Bush. <laughs> but so we have the decider and the doer, what I call the deliberator and the executor. And Uh, The division of agential labor basically functionally recreates or recapitulates across uh, multiple individuals that same process of individual agency by having one person be the deliberator, the other person the executor. So that's what a division of agential labor is. But how do you come to be my deliberator and sorry so how do you come to be my deliberator and how do i come to be your executor you know in a case where you're the deliberator and i'm the executor how, how do we establish that or form that relationship and i argue basically that we establish this relationship when we both agree to treat your instructions as protected reasons for my actions so what are protected reasons uh, well, uh, this is this can get a little bit complicated, but the idea is that I have a protected reason to do what you say when you're saying it 
is a reason for me to do it, irrespective of the content of what you're saying. So basically, I'm supposed to do what you say because you say it, rather than because the merits of the independent merits of your instructions. And I'm supposed to do not only because you say it, uh, but in deciding to act accordingly, I'm supposed to set aside or bracket a certain set of competing considerations. Uh, so for example, suppose that I promise to be on the program today on New Books and Philosophy today. And uh, I suppose I promised to you to do this, which I did. And when the time comes, uh, the fact that I might feel like going for a jog instead is not supposed to count as a reason at all against uh, uh, against coming on the program. It's not supposed to count as a reason at all in favor of breaking the promise. So when we make promises, we're supposed to bracket off certain competing considerations. The idea that I'm supposed to do it because I made uh, a promise. So promises, uh, you know, have that sort of protected status. Now, of course, uh, you know, these protected reasons that are immune to certain kinds of competing considerations and which are supposed to be uh, acted upon uh, because the person who gives the instructions gave those instructions, there might be limited in certain ways. Uh, you know, maybe they're supposed to be protected against certain competing considerations, but not all. And presumably, they're not supposed to be protected against competing moral considerations. Uh, so, you know, if there's an emergency, if someone is in dire need of help, if it turns out that the original a promise I made is wrong or that the authority you have over me is illegitimate or immoral, then those all might be reasons to act contrary to what you instruct. Uh, but the uh, protected reasons associated with you know, promises, agreements, contracts, they're paradigmatically practical reasons, not moral reasons. So even mafia members can make sense of the protected reasons that they have over one another because the reasons that they give are, are practical rather than moral. So then the issue is, how do these, what do these protected reasons, uh, how do they entail authority? Well, uh, the structure of protected reasons, as I mentioned, they basically prohibit the person who has them from second-guessing the instructions they're given in certain ways. And what is authority if not a prohibition or on deliberation of certain sorts? Uh, so, you know, theirs is not a reason why, theirs is but to do or die. They're not supposed to think about the pros and cons of doing what they're doing. They're just supposed to do it. And uh, so we can see that protected reasons kind of does a good job of capturing uh, what counts as authority. And the protected reasons themselves is explained in part by this division of agential labor, whereby one person counts as a deliberator and another person counts as the executor. And this is all really kind of abstract and up in the air and abstruse. But I think that uh, we have protected reasons or we confer protected reasons upon others uh, all the time, every day, on a daily basis. So I already hinted that or suggested that promises confer protected reasons. So, for example, um, suppose that uh, a colleague asks me to give a gift to the chair of the apartment 
to, uh, to hand over a gift, to deliver for him a gift to the chair of the department, uh, whom I'm going to see today uh, anyway. And I agreed to do so. I promised to do so. And uh, as a result, I have a protected reason to give that gift, that when the time comes, I'm supposed to do it. And the fact that I don't feel like doing it or that it's a hassle doesn't count as the reasons against it. And the very fact that you instructed me to do so counts the reason in favor of it. Uh, but notice that what it is that I'm doing is going to be determined in part by the purpose that you confer upon my gift giving. So maybe it's just to express felicitations on the chair's birthday. Maybe that's the purpose of the gift. Or maybe it's to uh, maybe it's a bribe. And basically, the deliberator determines that, not me, not the executor. The deliberator is going to determine, at least in part, the purpose of a gift that I'm giving in virtue of uh, their status as the deliberator in a division of agential labor. So promises are an example where we establish this division of agential labor where one person's deliberator and the other person's executor. This also goes for demands, and I argue even requests can establish this sort of division of agential labor, as well as relationships in the context of shared action of the sort that, you know, um, uh, Margaret Gilbert and Michael Bratman uh, discuss, that those two are basis for establishing divisions of agential labor, which uh, sort of uh, underwrite authority relations, which in turn provide a basis for understanding what one person does in terms of the purpose conferred upon by another. Great. Now, you're, um, you know, you, 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 you give a lot of attention, uh, and this is a, I thought was a really, really uh, nice discussion uh, uh, in the book, um, to various kinds of contexts that I suspect at least some of our readers are now thinking about, where it looks as if the division of agential labor might um, uh, might have been created or might emerge under contexts where um, individuals' agency in creating that division <laughs> might be compromised or from a moral point of view might somehow be uh, a little bit less than, uh, uh, well, as you put it, less than perfect. Um, you talk about these sort of coercion and, and, and ignorance and alienation cases. Can you tell us a little bit about um, uh, these kinds of contexts where one um, – uh, where where uh, uh, the the protected reason the relationship to in order to give rise to protected reasons sort of exists, but the um, uh, the the creation of uh, of of the the division seems to have something morally not quite uh, optimal about it. Yeah. So in all these toy cases I've mentioned so far, both here and you know in the book, they're all pretty idealized. Uh, all the participants, they sort of know what's going on. They agree to participate of their own accord and they want to participate. But, uh, you know, very often these divisions of agential labor are not so clean. Uh, you know, so for example, people might be coerced into serving as executors or deliberate, deliberators. People might be ignorant of what it is that they're doing and or what the consequences are of what they're ordering, you know, in cases where the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. 
or people might, you know, they might not be coerced and they might not be ignorant, but they just might not care what the other people are doing. Uh, and these sorts of cases, cases, they aren't the exception. I mean, I think they're, they're very often the norm. Uh, if you, you know, think of people working in corporations, you know, in the military, in uh, any, any bureaucracy, really, you're going to have people who, whose participation isn't full and voluntary, isn't fully voluntary. They don't really know what it is they're doing or why, and they don't really care. And the account that I developed so far needs to be able to accommodate these cases or, you know, contend with these cases. So I focus specifically on three ways in which you might have these less than ideal divisions of agential labor on uh, coerced divisions, uh, ones where the participants are ignorant and ones where the participants are alienated. And, you know, as you've seen going through it, there's a lot of, you know, detail here. I go through these cases very carefully in discussing the effects of coercion, ignorance, and alienation. But just to, as a kind of quick summary, with respect to coercion, you have cases where the executor might have their arm twisted into participating, uh, where they're kind of made to participate, either through outright threats or through circumstantial, uh, you know, or through circumstances that basically force them to participate. And I argue that whether the executor is coerced into participating doesn't really affect authority-based accountability. Uh, now, um, you might think, now, wait a minute, the sort of paradigmatic example I gave involved promises where one person promises to do something for another. And if the promise maker is sort of coerced into promising, doesn't that undercut the status of the promise and thereby vitiate or eliminate the authority that is ostensibly, that, that the promise maker ostensibly gives the deliberator? That's true. But remember that promises aren't the only basis or only, only, only way we can form uh, divisions of agential labor. Demands, including demands backed by threats, can be. So cases of coerced promises can be recharacterized as cases of demands. But the upshot is that when the executor is coerced, it doesn't really affect authority-based accountability, which shouldn't be a surprise because authority-based accountability is the accountability of the deliberator not the executor. But what about cases where the deliberator is coerced? This might affect authority-based accountability, but it's unclear even what it means to say a deliberator is coerced. This would be a case where someone is basically threatened into being a decision maker. And whether being a decision maker is compatible with being threatened it depends on how severe the threat is. The more severe the threat is, the less actual authority the deliberator has. I mean, you know, the deliberator is supposed to be deciding what to do. And if they have a gun pointed at their head saying, okay, I want you to decide what to do, there's something comical about that. 
precisely because they yeah, can't it, decide. Right. And it looks like in, in these sort of severe cases, the deliberator has just been conscripted into being somebody else's executor. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So right. in those cases, it might undercut authority-based accountability, but only because the deliberator no longer properly functions as a deliberator. So that's sort of the upshot of the relevance of coercion. Uh, with respect to ignorance, I mean, you have cases where the executor might not know exactly what it is she's being asked to do or why she's been asked to do it, or she might be deceived about the purpose conferred upon her. And this is partly a characteristic of, you know, Goon and Contender. Goon didn't know why he was doing what he was doing. Uh, but we have more generally these bureaucracies where the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. So, uh, you know, the, the, or cases where the deliberator tells the executor to drive the car to the dump and, you know, don't look in the trunk, where the, where the executor can guess that something nefarious is afoot. But you have other cases where the executor might not really know or might not really have any suspicion. So you might have researchers working on a technology that they reasonably believe will be put to humanitarian purposes, but will actually be used for nefarious ends. And these cases aren't likely to affect authority-based accountability for the same reason that the cases of coercion didn't. That's because the accountability goes to the deliberator and not the executor. Though, I guess, if uh, there is enough ignorance or deception, that might undercut the status of the basis for the deliberator's authority when that authority is based on a promise. Like, if you... Uh, promise to do something and thereby confer authority upon the person to whom you make that promise. And uh, what it is that you've agreed to do is quite different from the content of the promise you made that might undercut the promise. But those cases aside, uh, you know, the executor's ignorance doesn't really do much to affect authority-based accountability. But the deliberator's ignorance can be, uh, can affect uh, the deliberator's authority-based accountability for what the executor does. So the deliberator might be ign ignorant of exactly how the executor is going to do what she has been told to do. So imagine the commanding officer, uh, a commanding officer says or orders those under her command to rescue the POWs. And the squad members do so, but in a way that results in a war crime. I mean, this can affect authority-based accountability if the deliberator's ignorance is epistemically justified. I mean, if there wasn't any real reason to believe that the squad members would execute their orders in that particular inimical way. Uh, so if the commanding officers or if the deliberator's ignorance is non-culpable, then that might affect authority-based accountability, but not if not, uh, but not if it's not uh, culpable. And finally, uh, we have alienation. And this was the part where I spend the most amount of time talking about. But just as a quick summary, uh, the idea is that even when everyone is participating more or less uh, freely, and even when everyone knows what's going on, they still just might not care about what they're doing together. So think of the soldier who just wants to do what's needed to do to get home alive. Or the manager who doesn't give a hoot about the company and only wants the paycheck. Or uh, uh, the bank robber who doesn't care whether the robbery is successful, but only wants to participate to get street cred. You know, it doesn't, doesn't actually care about what's stolen. 
uh, and and they're also examples of individual ostensible deliberators and executors who make promises and agreements, but do so insincerely, or who at least just aren't very serious about them. So think of a soldier who, in the confines of his own thoughts, uh, doesn't really think that anyone has authority over him or has like contempt for the higher ups that they don't have the grit, you know, like they they they're just they're just uh, you know they 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 just man desks, they they fly offices, and that they don't really have authority over me. Or or the worker who does as the manager says, but doesn't think that there's any sense in which you know she has to do so. That, that denies that there's any kind of authority. And I painstakingly categorize these various kinds of alienation in the book, but to skip to the upshot, you know, how do we make sense of authority-based accountability in these cases? Do they undercut the divisions of agential labor when the executors or the deliberators don't take the authority seriously? And I basically, I say that alienation is unlikely to undermine authority-based accountability. Uh, uh, so for uh, focusing first on the alienation of the executors, that doesn't undercut the divisions of agential labor because promises, agreements, these contractual relationships are socially determined. I take an externalist account of these authority relations. So if I, uh, so take the soldier who believes that the commanding officer has no authority over them. It doesn't matter what the authority privately believes. The commanding officer actually has authority in virtue of having agreed to confer. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, in, in agreed of having in, in, in virtue of the soldier's agreement to divest authority onto the um, onto the commanding officer. Ditto for promises. I might make you a promise, and if I privately think, oh, you know, he doesn't actually have the authority to to demand that I act in accordance with a promise because I was. Uh, in the confines of my own thoughts, making the promise insincerely, that certainly doesn't invalidate the promise. You know, insincere promises are still promises. And so these sorts of alienation don't undercut authority-based accountability when it's the executor that's alienated. Uh, and ditto for the deliberator. You know, the deliberator might privately deny that he has authority over anyone. So think of the manager who's suffering from um, imposter syndrome and doesn't really think that he has authority. But uh, that private attitude doesn't weaken or vitiate his actual authority. Uh, in the same way that if I make promises to someone and I privately believe that I don't have the authority to demand that you do what I, uh, what you, sorry, if I accept a promise from someone and I privately believe that I don't have the authority to demand that you act on the promise that you made, that doesn't matter. I still have that authority, provided that the promise is otherwise valid. So all these kinds of uh, these these kinds of less than perfect divisions of agential labor are mostly compatible with authority based accountability. Fabulous. That was uh, that was exceptionally clear. Um, now, so. Um, uh, Saba, you've been really generous with your time, and and and, and time is running short. Um, so let me say this: you know, uh, to those uh, who are listening, um, the discussion so far is just focused on the first part of the book, which is the first four chapters. Um, 
you have a second part of the book, which is about applications. In particular, you're interested in uh, thinking about this model of authority-based um, accountability in contexts of war, um, um, legal contexts where there are accomplices and, and, and liability, and institutional racism. And you apply the model to, to these kinds of cases. But if you'll allow me, I, I, I'd like to just ask the final question um, about, about the conclusion um, which uh, I, I thought was really rich, <laughs> um, uh, because um, you brought us back to uh, what I suspect will be familiar to a lot of our listeners: um, the Bernard Williams, you know, part of Bernard Williams' fav- you know, famous uh, 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 critique of utilitarianism, raises these cases that we like to talk about. That were, it looks like utilitarianism, maybe consequentialism in general. Uh, can't uh, give you know due regard to individual integrity. Uh, can we can we end up? Uh, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about this kind of upshot? Yeah, sure. So this discussion of integrity, honestly, I wasn't quite sure where to put it in the book because, as you mentioned, the first half of the book is kind of like the the wonky discussion of divisions of agential labor and authority and and so on. And the second half is application to a variety of uh, uh, a variety of topics, you know, like uh, institutional racism and war and complicity and enterprise liability and so on. But then there's the implications that it has for integrity. So I put it in the conclusion, although I hope that it will, um, you know, sort of galvanize further discussion on this particular application. But basically, my goal was to show that authority-based accountability is relevant not just to individual accountability for cooperatively committed harms, but to other more basic moral categories as well, which includes uh, integrity. So, you know, in Bernard Williams's or one of Bernard Williams's canonical examples of George, uh, he is a chemist who's faced with an ethical dilemma. Basically, uh, you know, he doesn't have a job, he's unemployed, his family's suffering because of it, and he gets a job or he has available to him a job at a chemical weapons factory that makes weapons, that, that, that you know, is, is supplying weapons for unscrupulous actors. And George is very much a pacifist and is against the development of, or against the production of chemical weapons. And it's particularly... Uh, you know, it impinges particularly on his personal values for him to be personally involved in their production and development. And uh, but if George doesn't take the job, the person behind him in the queue, as it were, you know, behind him in line, who would otherwise have to take the job, is you know, George knows that that person is a zealous warmonger and <laughs> would, a monster. Yeah, <laughs> and he would do an even better job at creating even more. Um, even more effective chemical weapons. So the utility calculus militates wholly in favor of George taking the job. He does better for the world by helping produce these uh, weapons, uh, and he does better for his family. He's going to feel worse as a result, but uh, you know that sort of counterbalanced, or it seems that it's counterbalanced by the other positive considerations. And, you know, William's discussion of the example is it's less about what George should do 
and more about how he should decide what to do. This is despite many an undergraduate paper, which will categorize <laughs> this as just, you know, oh, George should take the job or George should not take the job. But, you know, Williams's point is that whatever else might be true of morality, uh, it, we can't demand that George treat the violation of his deepest convictions as just another value in the cost column of a utilitarian calculus. Right. I mean, Williams even says it's not that we're getting the wrong answer. It's that we're getting an answer too quickly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. And f- yeah. forcing him to treat his own uh, convictions uh, as just another value is to alienate him uh, from his actions and the source of his own uh, convictions. And this would constitute an attack on his integrity insofar as integrity requires that we pay that that we act in a way that flows from our deepest convictions but i so okay so this is where i come in i argue that uh this characterization understates the way in which uh george's integrity is intact uh, sorry is is attacked and the point isn't simply that he's asked to contribute to an end he finds morally abhorrent uh Rather, the attack on George's integrity also lies in accepting the purpose of contributing to such an end. So, uh, you know, on Williams's view, an agent's integrity lies in the ability to originate actions, to further her own initiatives or purposes or concerns. And in that respect, the agent is more than just a conduit for furthering the initiatives or purposes or concerns that others might have. But by taking on the job in which uh, George serves as an executor and his employer serves as a deliberator, George has basically relegated himself to the role of a conduit in furtherance of initiatives or purposes and concerns that are deeply, uh, that are deeply uh, antithetical to his own. And uh, so his employer, after all, confers upon George um, these protected reasons to comply with uh, his instructions, you know, as I mentioned throughout the book. So George is supposed to refrain from weighing the pros and cons of fulfilling uh, the task of functioning as an effective chemist. Remember that these protected reasons, they cordon off or they bracket certain forms of deliberation. George is not supposed to think about it. Uh, He's supposed to surrender deliberation regarding this morally critical issue to uh, these unscrupulous opportunists where his deepest moral convictions, they demand the opposite, that he grant his tasks exactly the kind of critical moral deliberation that his role as executor prohibits. And this relationship is, in of, is going to be in of itself a violation of his integrity, uh, regardless of whether he ends up causally contributing to an unjust end. Uh, now, this doesn't mean that, that you know, uh, whenever you are serving as a conduit for the ends or concerns or purposes of others that you are violating your integrity. No, when the person whose ends or concerns or purposes that you are furthering for whom you serve as a conduit are compatible with your own, 
then you know you're not violating your integrity. Uh, but the point here is that the relationships we have with those in authority affect. Uh, they're going to affect not just what we're accountable for and what they're accountable for, which which is you know important enough, but they're also. Uh, but they also affect whether we can be said to act in a way that's true to ourselves. So think of all the different kinds of authority that you or I are under right now, a formal, informal authority. And, you know, it's hard to keep the tally, especially, you know, within in such a bureaucratized world. And each one, I think, matters in ways that I don't think have been uh, fully explored. And this is uh, just the start. Well, um, uh, Saba, this has been really a, a, a really fine conversation about, a, a, I think, just a, a, a real fabulous, um, really fabulous philosophy book. Um, thank you for joining me on New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for inviting me. It's been great fun. Yeah. Um, uh, and let me just thank our listeners. Uh, thank you, listeners, uh, for joining us uh, for the discussion. Uh, I've been talking to Saba Bazargan Forward. Um, the new book, uh, which is just out now with Oxford University Press, is titled Authority, Cooperation, and Accountability. Um, this is a, a, a real fantastic philosophy book. I highly recommend it. Uh, thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy, everyone, and thank uh, uh, and bye for now. <laughs>